I stepped out of the truck and slammed the door. Fury overwhelmed me. I was angry. Fire-breathing, lava-churning, smoke-billowing kind of anger. I didn't even look back at my husband as I stomped out off to the front door of our small home. Whatever that, the, the fight was about that day, I, 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 don't, I don't remember. We were still newlyweds, trying to sort out this game of marriage. Some days were grand and full of adventure. Other days were, I, I was left stunned in my selfishness. Who knew that marriage would bring so many hidden emotions to the surface? I reached the front door located at the, uh, by, the, by the large window and, and yanked it open, vaguely aware that my husband was not following me. Whatever, I thought. Not like I wanted to talk to him anyway. I slammed the door shut. My husband stood quietly outside. Then, in a calm voice, he said, Bring me the machete. What, 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 what kind of nonsense is this? Asking for a machete in the middle of an argument? How mad is he? I stared at him stupidly, not, not, not comprehending the reason for his request. Again, he asked me, bring me the machete, please. The urgency in his voice moved me to obey. I found the machete. Bring it to the side door. Another odd request as we never used that door, but now I sensed that something was amiss, and I hurried to meet him at the side door. Once outside, I followed him as he backtracked around the corner to the front door, the door I had slammed only moments before. Clinging vertically against the windowsill, mere inches from the door I had just entered, and directly in line where my head would have been was a fur de lance snake. Known as the dreaded yellow jaw Tommy Goff, or the Barba Amaria, as the locals call it. The deadliest snake in South America. With a few strokes, my suddenly heroic husband disposed of the threat. I was stunned, horrified. How had I missed it? Literally inches from my head and completely exposed. How had I been so blind? But I already knew. I had allowed my raging temper to blind me, focused on myself, huffing in self-righteousness. I had nearly walked into disaster. And that is what uncontrolled, undisciplined, unrighteous anger does. It blinds us. Anger is a common emotion. An emotion that God gave to us. In theological language, we say that anger is one of the communicable attributes of God. Meaning that 
God is characterized by anger. And he has communicated that to his creation, to men and women. We get angry because God gets angry. Now, we know that God gets angry because his, his, um, his, his honor, his, his, uh, um, his glory is besmirched. Others defraud him of what is rightfully his, the acknowledgement that he is the righteous one. God is angered when, when sin, when injustice is paraded in the streets and celebrated. That anger is communicated to us, men and women, and we are to be angry for the same things, for the same reasons, because God's honor has been stolen. His, his glory has been besmirched. Injustice, sin is celebrated on the streets. And for that, we must get angry. God expects that of us. He gives us that anger that we reflect his character. But all of our anger is not not justified, is it? It's it's not always right. It's not always appropriate. It's it's not always in keeping. It's not always a reflection of who God is. Because pride, jealousy, selfishness, fear get in the way. Listen to how God expresses his righteous indignation. Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abounded in, in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. So if we are to reflect the glory, the character of God, if the way that God expresses himself in his anger is to be found in us, what does that look like? Psalm 7, verse 11, tells us that God is angry every day. His indignation is with him every day. For every time he sees sin, every time he finds injustice, inequity, God is angered. He is slow in his anger. Now, Paul writes in the book of, of Ephesians, chapter 4, Be angry! Only do not sin. What does that look like? 
just from the book of uh, Proverbs. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. From chapter 16. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. From chapter 19. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. James tells us, chapter 1, verse 20. Man's anger, man's unrighteous anger, does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So if we are to reflect God's character, His likeness, His qualities, this communicable attribute of anger must be displayed slowly, with patience, grace, and mercy, with understanding that we are dealing with sinful people around us, all around us, who will on occasion drive us mad. In our continuing study through the gospel According to John, I direct your attention by way of review as we finally get to the end of chapter 7 this morning, I, I, I remind you of chapter 5. That was the chapter where, where Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, up to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Broods. That's what we surmise. Chapter 5, verse 1 just says that Jesus goes up to the feast. Now, we don't know which one that was, but scholars think that it's best for us to understand this is the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem here in chapter 5. And there is a man who is diseased and disabled for 38 long years. And on a Sabbath, Jesus heals this man. The religious leaders are livid. Angry is probably not strong enough to describe their emotion. We read in chapter 5, verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now these religious leaders thought that their anger was justified. This is righteous indignation from their perspective. But what they did was they failed to do their homework. They failed to look carefully at who Jesus was and what he was doing. Now, regarding what he was doing, he did indeed heal a man on the Sabbath. 
And the religious leaders chastised Jesus as being a lawbreaker. He did break their rabbinic laws. But God isn't demanding that we fulfill, that we obey all of the crazy laws that mankind uh, dreams up. He asks us to keep his law. Jesus did not break the fourth commandment. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath and keep that day holy. Indeed, he fulfilled the Sabbath by demonstrating mercy on that particular day. Now, regarding his his, uh, uh, claim of being equal with God, they sought to kill him and thought they were justified in seeking to do so because this was a blasphemous statement. What they failed to to understand, what what they failed to discern was it's not blasphemy if it's true. And it is indeed true. Jesus is equal with the Father. He is of the same essence, the same stuff as the Father, only in human flesh. A year later, we come to chapter 7, and this fomenting, rolling boil of anger on the part of the religious leaders has not subsided. It hasn't diminished in any way. It is with a greater intensity, if you will. Chapter 7, verse 1, opens up. Um, Jesus was unwilling to go to uh, Judea in the manner that his brothers wanted him to because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews referring largely to the religious leaders. We get to chapter 7, verse 30, and there were others in the crowd, the loyalists to the religious leaders, that were seeking to seize Jesus. Verse 30 concludes, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You remember when we looked at that two weeks ago? The little word and caught my attention and brought me great delight. It was true that they were seeking to seize Jesus in order to arrest him, uh, execute him, and, and it was also true that his time had not yet come. Meaning that though the religious leaders were fomenting in their anger, they would not be able to express their anger and to accomplish all the destructive things that they wanted to do to Jesus because his hour had not yet come. His hour would come, and Jesus would willingly give his life. But that's six months from the time of chapter 7. Look at verse 32. We looked at last week. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests, the Pharisees, sent officers to seize Jesus. Okay, now their anger has taken another, uh, has jumped up another level. 
not, not only are they uh, emotionally bent on taking Jesus' life, now they're making it legal. They have issued a warrant for his arrest and subsequent execution. Last week we left Jesus speaking words in the middle, maybe uh, not, not in the middle, but at the, at the high point of the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember the, the, that particular feast in the fall was designed to uh, remember the work of God, the provision of God for the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering, how he provided food for them in manna, how he provided water for them even out of the rock. And you remember, at the last day of the feast, the high priest went down to the pool of Siloam, filled one, a, a, a golden uh, water pitcher, and he walked it up to the temple with the people following in his train and and once he got to the temple he ascended the altar of burnt offering after walking around that offering uh, that 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 um, uh, altar for uh, seven times he ascended the uh, the altar and he held the golden picture and the people shouted for him to raise it still higher and then he poured it out this was a reenactment of God's gracious provision of water in the midst of a desperate, thirsty desert. And then in verse 37, we looked at last week, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Was it at that time? We don't know. Were the people shouting that the priest raised the the, the pitcher higher, and, and as it poured out, is that the time that Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. To have been there, and to have seen that, and to have heard that. The one who fulfilled that water being poured out was in their midst. Come, drink, and you will have everlasting life. Now we're ready for our text. Beginning of verse 40. Follow along with me. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, 
but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered him, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees have believed him, has he? But this, but this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had come to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and find that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Second point, page of your notes. Point number one, the division among Jesus' hearers. There's three groups of people mentioned in verses 40 through 44. 44, uh, and, and their reaction to Jesus is different. Yes, no, maybe so. Let's deal with them as the text does. Verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Now, you remember, uh, we've, we've, we've talked about the identity of Jesus, particularly here in our study through John's Gospel, uh, that's, that's where the Christian life begins. Who is Jesus? And there was all kinds of confusion over who he was. There were some that thought that he was um, just another Old Testament prophet. There were some that thought that he was, he was the, the forerunner of Messiah. There were some that thought that he was the prophet like Moses. That was expected. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses is speaking to the people. He's giving revelation to them. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I, have, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses was a deliverer. Moses was one who delivered revelation to the people. He delivered uh, the Israelites by, by, by way of the exodus. He anticipated, Moses anticipated the Messiah, who was the prophet with a capital P. Now, if those who were wondering, who is this Jesus? And they said, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he's the prophet. If they were referring to that one identified in Deuteronomy 18 as 
the prophet with a capital P, they would be among those who would say Jesus is the Christ. Christ is simply the Greek translation for the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. Mm. So, so in, in saying that Jesus was the prophet, uh, they're not referring to the Messiah as in the one who is in the likeness of Moses. There's another prophet with a capital P. That would have been the forerunner. And Jesus already identified him as John the baptizer. So this maybe so crowd thinking he he's 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 got to be he's got to be a prophet would say we're saying he he's got to be the forerunner of the messiah that's one response second re- response verse 41 others were saying this is the christ he's the guy this is the one we've been waiting for These are the ones that, in the language of chapter 6 of John's Gospel, these are the ones who identify Jesus as the bread of life. These are the ones who were eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood. Not literally, it was a a figure of speech. Referring to those who were trusting him, coming to him, believing on him. The third group, still others, were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of Abraham? I'm I'm sorry, the descendants of David, and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, at least this group of people who did not believe that Jesus was Messiah, at least they went to Sunday school and they listened to the lessons. And they understood that Messiah was going to be of the lineage of David. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And the Messiah was going to be born in the village where David grew up. Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Yes, that's true of Messiah. But they failed to do their homework... They failed to ask questions to confirm their assumptions or to correct their assumptions. Jesus was of the lineage of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled all prophecy. But he happened to spend a lot of years in Nazareth as well. Scripture does not say that he had to live and work in Bethlehem. It simply says that he had to be born there. Well, there were there were um, um, a, there was a division among the crowd. Verse forty-three tells us that because of their understanding about Jesus. And and this is not something that should surprise us. Everywhere we turn in the gospel records, we find that there is division um, regarding who Jesus is. 
in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, Jesus himself says this, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There is going to be division over who I am in every level of society. Yes, no, maybe so. That's how it's going to play itself out. There will be a, 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 a bold line of distinction that separates the sheep from the goats, from the children of light, from the children of darkness, from the children of God, from the children of the devil. One author said that Jesus is the great continental divide. Water will go one way or the other. There is no other option. Wait a minute, there's three, three different responses here. Well, there are three responses, but you're only going to go one of two ways. Look with me at chapter 8 of John's Gospel. Find verse 24. Jesus said this, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's not the kind of verse I would really like to read to people. I would really like to say, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and everything is really going to be turning out just fine. Just fine. The truth of the matter is, unless you believe that I am He, I am the Christ, I am the Mashiach of God, you will die in your sins. Great continental divide. You is either a sheep or you is a goat. Ain't no other pass. Uh, ain't no other. Um, there ain't no other path. That path. I'm not sure what word I'm really trying to say. There's no other way. So, so my friends, I, I, I urge you, because of the bold line that God has drawn, separating and dividing, even within families, please. Don't make something that Jesus said is black or white some shade of gray. Point number two, the anger among Jesus' hearers. Verse verse 45 picks up where we left off at verse 32 in this chapter. You remember in verse 32, the the Pharisees 
and, uh, and, the, and the chief priests, that is the Sadducees, the, the, the conservative and the, the liberal side of uh, the, um, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin, their, their Supreme Court, if you will. Uh, they uh, instructed uh, their officers to, to, to seize Jesus, to, to arrest him, to, to bring him into their court. Now you have to, have to know that the, um, uh, these officers are temple police. They are not mercenary thugs. Uh, these are not gun-toting men who were living and dying for armed conflict. These were Levites. These were Bible college grads. These were guys who were trained, instructed, schooled in God's law, charged with the responsibility of maintaining the temple. These are not hardened men. These are religiously minded men who had been conscripted by the Sanhedrin to do their bidding, to do specifically those things that Rome couldn't care less about, but were important to the court. So when the temple police were involved, they were involved in some religious dispute that Rome couldn't care less about. Verse 45. These officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, their bosses. And they said to them, that is the, the chief priests and Pharisees said to, to the officers, uh, why, why did you not bring him? Uh, did we not give you very clear instructions, men? You have failed in your duty. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Jesus spoke their language. Jesus spoke in terms they understood. They were sent to arrest Jesus, but Jesus arrested them. He grabbed their attention, and they understood there is... We have never been around a man who, who speaks like he speaks, who commands authority, who, who has personal power like he has. And, he, and they spoke this to their bosses, many of whom were rabbis and who taught with regularity. And they said, this, this guy's got everything and then some more than you guys do. Notice in the next verse that the Pharisees did not answer these men by, by, um, by dressing them down because they failed in their duty. They charged them and challenged them because they broke with the majority. They 
didn't side with the loyalists. The Pharisees answered them, verse 47. You have not also been led astray, have you? Have you been conned? Have you been played? Have you been bamboozled or hoodwinked by this guy? What are you thinking? You're Bible college grads. What are you thinking? You're obviously not thinking. Verse 48. No one of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in him, has he? Look at all the guys surrounding you, your bosses, who are more educated than you are. We are seminary grads. Has any of us diverted? Have any of us stooped to follow this Jesus? Verse 49, this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. They are fools. They are condemned because they're chasing after Jesus without knowledge. They're violating the law because they are supporting a lawbreaker. And you, 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 you Bible college grads are, are siding with the crowds? You should be ashamed of yourselves. That's the tone of the court as they're addressing these officers. But look who shows up in verse 50. <laughs> One of their own. Nicodemus, who came to him before, being one of them, being on the court, you remember, let me, let me pause right here. You, you remember in chapter 3 when we met Nicodemus, um, he, he came to Jesus by night. And under the cover of night, he asked Jesus about the signs that he did. Remember, a, a sign was a miraculous deed that Jesus did that signified, signified, pointed toward who he was. Jesus, or rather Nicodemus, said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that God is with you. We know these signs point to something. Help me out. Fill in the blanks. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Nicodemus is struggling to understand what does this exactly mean? He's not a dummy. Jesus called this man the teacher of Israel. He was not just a Bible college grad, not just a seminary grad. He had two PhDs. This is not a dumb guy. But Jesus said to him, you still must be born Again. Now that conversation in chapter 3 of John's Gospel happened at least a couple of years prior to chapter 7. 
Now in chapter 7, this is what Nicodemus says. Verse 51. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now in one sense, Nicodemus, we don't know if he's a believer at this point. Uh, he, 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 he may be covering for Jesus in, in a rather off-the-cuff manner. He may be simply asking a procedural question. Because the warrant was calling for Jesus' arrest and subsequent execution. And, and Nicodemus was saying, um, gentlemen, if we would read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we would realize, we would remember the fact that God's law tells us that there must be justice for all men. We can't condemn a man. We can't execute a man based on second-hand information. We have to hear from him. Now, we can't go forward with this warrant um, without listening to him, can we? That's all that Jesus, or that's, that's all that Nicodemus asks. Let, let's, let's slow down here and, and, and go through the proper channels. Let's not be, watch it, blinded by our anger. Verse 52, so they answered him. You are not also from Galilee, are you? Stop right there. We see this kind of behavior happening in the news every single day. It's called an ad hominem argument. It's a Latin phrase. It simply means to the man. If you cannot or will not engage with a man on the basis of his ideas, then you challenge the man. And you try to discredit whatever he is talking about by undermining him. We see it every day. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing to Nicodemus. They're not addressing Nicodemus's concern for justice, righteousness, equity in the matter of bringing a prisoner in. Where Nicodemus was concerned, we don't, we, don't just, we don't just execute people because we're upset with them and we don't like their ideas. But they didn't deal with Nicodemus on the basis of ideas, of his suggestion, of his demand. No, they said, you are not also from Galilee, are you? That was a slur. The, the people in Jerusalem, the people of Judea, um, they were the educated ones, they were the pious ones, they were the spiritual ones. They were God's blessed ones. And if you were from Galilee, heaven help you, you were scum. You were uneducated, uh, unsophisticated. You had nothing to offer. 
They sidelined anybody from Galilee. And then they say, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Search and see that no one arises out of Galilee. You know where Jonah was from? The prophet Jonah was, was from the town of Gath-Hefer, which was just three, maybe four miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus was from. And when we talk about uh, the prophets, we can easily divide them into two groups, writing prophets and non-writing prophets. Now, of the writing prophets, there were only a handful, and we have those contained in the, in the scriptures. Um, men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we got all the, all the 12 minor prophets. Minor not because they were less important or they had something inferior to say, but simply because their books were shorter. Scholars think that Nahum, the writing prophet Nahum, and the writing prophet Hosea were also from Galilee. Two, two of the more famous non-writing prophets, Elisha, excuse me, Elisha and, his, and uh, Elijah, um, uh, founded, uh, supported uh, the schools of the prophets. And there were hundreds of non-writing prophets and you remember that the, that the, the prophets um, had two responsibilities. They were to foretell uh, revelation given to them by God. Usually those were writing prophets because that was captured and, and inscripturated for us. But more often than not, they were there to foretell what revelation had already been given. They were the preachers of, uh, of Israel. One, one rabbi by the name of Eleazar, Rabbi Eleazar, circa 90 A.D., so a generation after all of this takes place, he wrote that there was not one tribe in Israel that did not also have a prophet coming from them. So, so this is a bold-faced lie that the the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the chief priests gave to Nicodemus. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That's nothing but baloney. There were many, even among writing prophets, that spoke from Galilee. Here's the point. Our undisciplined, uncontrolled anger will blind us. Blind us so that we, we, we don't see deadly things that are above us. Blind us so that we won't even see the truth that is right before us. We must be a people that reflect the character of God. We must be a people that are angry, but angry at the right things and at the right time. We must stand up 
against injustice and sin that is celebrated in the streets. But, as we find in the pages of Scripture, we are slow to anger. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Those who discipline themselves, uh, who are indeed mm, seeking to do the will of the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the Son is interceding for them. You see, we got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there on our behalf. Everyone who has been born again has the will of the Father, the intercession of the Son, and the presence of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do God's bidding. He's causing, he's calling all of us to be slow to anger. To be angry, but to not sin. Let's pray. Our blessed God, we thank you for the truth that we find in scripture i thank you for the example of jesus who even while he was on the cross even while he was being taunted ridiculed verbally abused to say nothing of his physical abuse he did not lash out he did not explode in anger because he was being personally attacked. He left room for the wrath of the Father. I pray that that same kind of slowness to anger would dominate our thinking. We give praise to your holy name for the scriptures you have preserved for us, that in them you might be glorified. Cause us to have a, a very keen, heightened awareness of your holiness, of transgressions, sin, that would violate your law and violate your character. Cause us to be angry at those things, as you are angry, as you are angry. We pray these in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who enables and empowers us to live according to your likeness.